Hey all, it is July 11th. So I decided to uh, recruit some of my old gaming friends to get together and have um, some conversations about all things role-playing. This first one is on gaming appetites, what we really want and don't want in our uh, role-playing campaigns both as GMs and players. I've broken these up into uh, manageable episodes because we just ramble on and on. Here's part one covering uh, some of our goals as gamers. Part two will be released uh, later on. So please hit me up with feedback and questions as they arise. Thanks. All right, I'm here with uh, John and Nate, who I gamed with for a thousand years or more. Uh, why don't you guys uh, go ahead and introduce yourselves and tell us how you got started into gaming and how we uh, hooked up gaming as well. Go ahead, John. Uh, yeah, so I started in, I think, 83 when I was in seventh grade. Uh, got introduced to D&D and um, enjoyed that. Um, Opened all kinds of imaginary doors as far as the gaming for the very first time. Um, eventually, some years passed, probably in the late late 80s, I migrated to some other systems and I never really went back to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I'm with a lot of different types of systems. I've been GMing and playing for, I don't know, since then that early 90s was when I really started to run games. And uh, I think... Um, we ran into one another in the late nineties. Is that correct? And just been talking gaming philosophy and jamming different campaigns since then. And it's been, it's been a long road, but enjoyable and um, I'll continue to do it. All right, Dave, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I got uh, seduced to the dark side by Daniel uh, and his game group probably um, maybe actually a short time before we all met John, maybe just a, yeah. like a year or two before. Um, but yeah, I didn't start gaming until I was in my early twenties. Uh, I had heard of, of gaming systems, uh, D and D and all that, but, uh, just had never played it. Um, and then eventually started playing, you know, Daniel's hybrid Frankenstein system. And, and then years and years later played other systems, um, yeah, and I, I was always just a, a fantasy and sci-fi nerd, so it, it very much was up my alley. Yeah, cool. All right, so uh, the first topic we're going to talk about is the gaming appetites that are out there. Role-playing games have so many different uh, elements that attract us. This has been discussed ever since role-playing games started. And in the late 90s, I encountered different writings, especially from the Forge website of Gaming Appetites, the gamist, narrativist, simulationist um, structure of, you know, of the appetites. And there's lots of variations on that triad. But however we slice it, there are all these different elements that people want. And I believe that uh, most people want one or two things more than all of the others, that identifying what you really want really matters if you're there for the role-playing. <clears throat> so uh, conversely, you also have gamers who are the uh, 
um, so-called beer and chips role players. And that is they really don't care about the role-playing game per se, right? They enjoy the act of getting together and doing uh, something. They enjoy getting together and gaming. And they don't really care uh, what system that you're playing or how it's played or or anything. Um, and so they're on the, the far extreme of it's a social activity purely and none of this matters. And then on the other end, what you have people who- in the role-playing game. The kind of style that's being used, the system that's used, and so forth. And then most of us fall... Uh, somewhere in between those extremes. Uh, so you also have, if, if we just go back to the triad of appetites that was identified, the gamists, um, so-called, are the ones who are there to win. So they view it very much as a competition. They are there to have their character win, whether it's physical combat or overcoming whatever challenge or puzzle. That's their appetite. And then the narrativist gamer, so-called, is after pursuing the story and trying to live out a novel with all of the um, crescendos and all of the drama that goes on. And then you have the uh, so-called simulationists, which are there to try and replicate what it's like to be a real person in that secondary world, they want it to feel real, quote unquote. So whatever we think about the old triad analysis of role-playing game appetites, I think it's at least a useful starting point for discussing these elements uh, of what draws us in. So with you guys, What do you think your primary appetite, your primary draw for role-playing would be? What do you strive for? What experience do you really want uh, when you play? And then conversely, what do you hate? Um, I'll I'll start with this. Um, I I think that for me, the the gain, uh, the enjoyment factor has changed from a gamist um, perspective when I was young learning, exploring, figuring out, you know, how magic is and the first monsters you ever run into in a role-playing game. It was always about, you know, winning and getting the treasure and being the hero. But as I matured as a person, I have moved away from the gamist perspective. And I I think perhaps this is a trend that a lot of people have migrated through. Uh, For me today, I run games and like to play in, in games that are more simulationist narrative mix. Um, and that's where I get my enjoyment out of uh, as a GM and as a player when I do have the rare occasion of playing these days. Yeah, I certainly think that, um, you know, age plays some factor, plays some part in, in what I get out of it. Uh, certainly think that when I first started, you know, was introduced to it, it was mostly a social activity. You know, it was something that, that appealed to the, the literature nerd in me, appealed to the sci-fi, you know, movie, video game nerd in me. Um, but then over, over time, uh, it became less about just the playing and potentially winning and more about the experience in the world. You know, 
creating and 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 finding a, a particular feeling within the game um that kind of like you know the i don't know if i want to call it a, this escapism but you no know, the, the the feeling of escaping out of this world into a constructed world uh that really feels like an otherworldly experience you know it's not just purely you know spectative but but you know participatory where you're actually like involved in that world uh so yeah i mean there, there's a sort of maturation process that goes from just enjoying it socially enjoying it as a game uh and then sort of moving into something i think maybe a little richer a little deeper yeah so the the old um gns model the triad that we're talking about it it has a lot of flaws to it, and uh, I don't want to get into dissecting that paradigm, but it is useful as a launching point. <clears throat> what others have pointed out through the years is that we alternate what our desires are, you know, through each campaign. And even, you know, in the moment, like we all like winning. No one likes not, not winning, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, there are times when uh, we really enjoy the battle just for the sake of winning, even though it's not our primary desire. Like my own primary appetite is the strong otherworld immersion experience where I feel like I am transported into this other place. I'm a real person. I'm subject to the laws of cause and effect. That's a really important part. And that I'm like bound up with the character I'm playing as a real person, as opposed to I'm playing a board game and I'm looking down at the table with the miniatures, et cetera. I mean, those are two totally different experiences, right? And I want the experience of really being, you know, bound up with my my character that I'm playing. So as relates to this, whenever you guys have encountered gaming groups who don't share your precise appetites. Um, how does that go for you? Um, how, like, I guess the first part of it would be how divergent are they? Like how different are their appetites compared to yours? And then what, what do you do about it? Hmm. Or how does it go for you? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I guess the other the other groups that I've played with, and this, this is probably true for a lot of gamers, that you don't really play with people unless you have a, a good sense that they're going to be relatively compatible with your gaming style. But of course, there there may be some, you know, like some instances where you, you do play with people who have, you know, a, a relatively different style. Um, I mean, I, I can remember one experience where uh, the group I was playing with, the GM, really wanted to bring a lot of kind of background detail and flavor um, into the game. And e- even though often that's the kind of stuff I love, I mean, I, I love the, the lore, um, I did feel like it was a bit much. You know, it was it was more than I was really interested in getting into. Um, and so I think maybe the plot was sacrificed, you know, for the sake of 
flavor for the sake of background. Right. But I do remember that even with that, that same group, there was one character, one, one of the players who was I, something of an anomaly and, and was just like a total gamist, you know, and he just wanted, he was interested in the system and he was interested in like knowing all of the system details about all of the other characters. And that struck me as really odd. Uh, and, and, but since I wasn't the GM of this group, I was just like, all right, whatever, you know, it's not my, not my place to say that's weird. Uh, but it did strike me as odd. Okay. I think for me, it's kind of birds of a feather type of mentality that I have that I tend to, I tend to try to find people that I think are like-minded to game with. Um, I used to own a, I owned a game store back in the nineties for 10 years. And I got to see a lot of different types of gamers. And I knew just from that observation, that there was a lot of types of groups that a lot of gamist types of groups that um, I didn't want to play with. I've been resist resistant to just having an open invitation to find a player. I would rather do kind of a, a, a a personal interaction to try to see if somebody fits. Having said that, there is room for exceptions and you can get people who are maybe on the, not on the fence completely or are there that they're on the fence, but they're not really in your camp yet. But if you introduce them to a different plate, a style and experience that they haven't been exposed to before, for example, you know, a gamist D and Dier who's played, you know, second edition third, three and a half and five, and they, you know, they're basically module driven. You know, kill, loot, get experience, re rinse, repeat. And there's not a lot of depth in there, not a lot of continuation in a campaign. And you bring somebody like that in that's open minded. I think there's potential there to bring new players into the fold that uh, uh, meet the um, desirables that you're looking for as far as play styles. Mm -hmm. So like it, whenever you've GM through the years, you've had players who um, want similar things to a point and then very much didn't want similar things. How did that affect your campaign when you were GMing it? That's probably one of the biggest friction points. I've run um, several long multi-year campaigns and sometimes those things those differences come to a head. Uh, some of its philosophical differences, like- Can you give an example of, of that? Um, sure. Uh, so I, I tend to run, stereotypically, I tend to run Middle-earth aloof types of elves, no matter what world I'm running. And one of my players, maybe more than one of them, I had a, I had a group of four, and they have a systemic disagreement with me about the closed mindedness of the elves that I run. So an analogy would be that if I was running Middle Earth and this player was going to run into Middle Earth elves, he would have a point of contention because the elves weren't open, open arms to bringing anybody into their havens and helping them or sharing all their knowledge with whoever came about uh, in in some some um, you know kind of communication with the elves, and he looks at it from a very um, there's a lot of modernity in his thought process. Like we should, why are they hoarding the magic? Why are they hoarding the technology? Why they aren't sharing? 
they could help everyone else elevate, lift all the boats up in the harbor kind of kind of mentality. And I don't I don't agree with that. Uh, and it's not just the elves, but I don't think that's how societies generally work, unless you're talking about Star Trek societies, right? And so that's caused some frustration for him and for me. And we've had long, you know, multi-hour discussions after long sessions about go back and forth about what we think is uh, the problem or not the problem. And, you know, they're, they're good, healthy discussions, but there's not the Kumbaya Star Trek utopia type of existence that will ever happen in, in a fantasy world that I run. So John, do you think then that uh, the impetus behind him wanting that option was just the advantage? I think he perceives it as being unfair. All right, so uh, with with different gaming appetites, like uh, a lot of it has to do with the presuppositions that players bring in when they start playing. So some of them may be that we as players should always have some kind of exception to the general rule that gives us a chance to win where other people in this world may not have that exception. Like... I've I've noticed, uh, and it's 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 hard for for them to articulate because they've never. Uh, I mean, some people just don't have discussions about gaming. Period. They simply have their package of presuppositions. This is the way we play, and they move forward. They think that um, all philosophical discourse on gaming is silly, which is true. Uh, if, unless you're really invested again, like we've talked about before, some, it's like movie night, right? Where it really matters to some people, what kind of movie you're watching and you want to analyze the movie and the directing, directing of photography, the script, you know, all the myriad options they want to dissect and other people don't give a shit. They have a movie on and they could be playing Euchre and they could be drinking and talking and they don't give a shit. And that's fine. It's two totally different experiences. And that happens in role playing games just as much. The problem occurs when some of the people really do care about the specific exam- um the specific experience of their role playing sessions and others don't, and then the conflict is started, right? And so if you have players who think, well, the rules of your world should bend to accommodate my specific desires as a player. And so one really really common one forever has been, okay, there's this massive city and I've got this important thing I want to do. I go see the king. What do you mean you go see the king? <laughs> you don't go see the king. You, the closest you're going to get is a guard who won't let you talk to the captain of the guard. Mm-hmm. And this is all system dependent, of course, but that the presupposition that player brings in is, wait, I'm a player. I am allowed to do those things that other people don't do because I'm a player. And if your group plays like that, fine. Uh, but it's a different experience than I personally want. So, yeah. So back, back to your point, John, you, you experienced something like that. I have, um, <clears throat> I will admit, uh, let me caveat that I, I tend to work really hard at the world building 
probably too much. I've been accused of by another friend of mine who I've known for 20 years, we've gamed off and on that I build the aircraft carrier to, to take the ship out. And I don't just build a little sailboat. And his, his analogy is that I over prepare, I overthink, I overdo everything. Uh, because I, for me, I don't feel comfortable setting sail without having done all the preparations, which is why it takes me a really long time to get a campaign up and running. Um, but with that said, I don't, so the exceptions I give to the players is in their concept, their character story, their character creation, but, you know, physics applies equally to everybody. Um, I do give the characters benefit of the doubt and they also, because I build so much work into the world itself, I tend to have a weakness of trying to do show and tell. So in order to reveal, I don't know, the history of Kingdom X that they're interested in learning about, I may allow the players to have an easier time getting access to that knowledge, whether that's through a verbal conversation with a Lord or getting access to the secret library that no one else has access to things like that. I, I, I probably should be a little bit more conservative in that, but you know, it's, it's one of the things I, I like to, I like to kind of have the players appreciate through the story what, what's out there for them. Um, but I do agree that the, you know, having the player name tag on the person walking around the world, silly, you know, uh, it takes away from the immersion. It takes away from the realism. They are not the exception. They are heroes because they're built as a character. And that in itself is a huge benefit compared to an NPC, right? Or should be, but they, they're, they they do not get to walk on water and go see the King. That, that would be like me going up and saying, I, I demand a demand an audience with, you know, the president that it's not going to happen let alone the governor and i'd have to make an appointment wait a month to see the mayor you know so there's that you know so what kind of like if you dissect that like what you're doing as a gm Mm -hmm. what drives that decision for you as a gm like you're trying to generate a specific kind of experience by those restrictions and what is that experience you're, you're trying to help germinate? So what, well, part of what I'm trying to avoid when I do these things, when I say no, no to the player, no to the character, not to the player, but is that it can't be easy. If it's easy, it gets boring. And then, then nobody, nobody has vested interest in the game anymore, especially, and that leads down a rabbit hole into, well, I just can't kill a player character. Because that's, you know, they lose and it's not fair. And, you, you know, you can argue about that. But uh, I like a risk adverse uh, cause and reaction type of world. And, um, and I like it to be, you lose the immersion when you give them the exception to everything. And so I want them to feel that they are subject to all the same rules, uh, political, economic, environmental, um, and that they are taking a risk when they decide to go charge some big, big monster, like a war troll or something. I mean, that there's possibilities there that they could die and it doesn't feel, I don't think it, it, I try to run a game the way I would like to play in one. And so I, w- I want my players to be as attached to their characters as I am attached to some of my favorite movie characters when I'm watching 
you, 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 I, I empathize with that with that character in the film, and I'm just watching the film. I'm not actually making the decisions. And the ultimate goal is to mix the empathy and the attachment to a movie character with the decision making and in, in, in freedom of a player character in a game world that seems just as the tapestry is just as rich. That's that's kind of the goal. All right, so Nate, um, whenever you're playing or GMing, the experience you want, let's let's just talk about being a player. So you're a player and you want to accomplish certain things. And there's lots of styles out there. I mean, I pay attention to a lot of uh, GMs who are uh, on different places on the spectrum of like, well, the player thought of it, therefore I'm gonna open the door and you know, whatever plan you happen to think of, it's it's like got a really good chance of working because the player thought of it. And that is a gaming style. And a lot of these, I, I, the a problem I see is for a lot of these styles, we don't have categories for them. We have these broad landmarks like the old triad of appetites, which helps a little. So if you're thinking about like, how easy or hard things should be. I don't know, where do you fall on that? Where do you find the enjoyment as a player or a GM? Yeah, that's, that's it, it is a hard question. Um, and I, there, there may be a discrepancy between what I might think I want and what I actually do or want uh, when I'm playing either as a player or as a GM, you know, I'm, I certainly want the world to be, like John mentioned, you know, um, risk aversion is a serious consideration. You know, I, I want the, the players to think as cautiously about achieving their goal as real people would, you know, in, in a real life situation. Um, and so, of course, I want the dice to play an important role in whatever plan the players come up with. However, at the same time, I'm very much a narrativist. I want to tell a good story. And the truth is the dice often don't tell a good story. You know, the dice really are random or they should be random. And random doesn't serve the narrative. And so it, I, I think I often try to walk that fine line between a, a truly you know, a, a truly chance dictated world, which I think is realistic, um, and playing a game that tells an interesting story. You know, because if, if the dice end up just screwing you at the climax of the story, that's a bad story. And that's something that I, that I want to avoid. And so I think uh, I, think I tend to... I, I tend to strive for as realistic world as, as possible unless the realism seems like it's going to prevent a good story from happening. And then I'm, I'm willing to kind of fudge the rules so that something more interesting, some, some more uh, fulfilling, more enthralling story can actually occur. So I, I guess I'm, in that respect, I'm I'm a little I'm a little inconsistent with you know the the philosophy that I claim to be so important, 
I'll, I'll bend those rules um, if it if it creates you know a better ending to the story or a better you know climax of events or or whatever. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm 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 not as uh, adherent to that as I think I would uh, tend to think I am. Yeah, that that's the. Uh, that's the really complicated and um, honest part about identifying gaming appetites is the conflicts that we have. And mm. we call them conflicts. They're, it's, it's more like it's vacillating appetites mm. where, you know, predominantly we may come to identify that we want X, but sometimes we want something that's not quite X, mm. right? So like, but I think about, you know, being a narrativist, uh, a so-called narrativist GM, I've really moved away from that. Um, I'm much more in favor of legit cause and effect events in the world, as opposed to I have a story that I want to tell that involves the players. So where I end up now as a GM is there is a story going on but it's happening independent of the PCs until the PCs can start affecting it. And at that point, um, my story be damned. Like if the players can actually do X, Y, and Z to start affecting what would be happening outside of them, then the player's actions matter more than my story. They, uh, what I should say, they matter more than the story I had constructed independent of their existence, right? So um, if we were to do a War of the Ring campaign, which no one should do, by the way, um, then, you know, you would have... Sauron and the Nazgul and the hunt for the ring and all these things are moving, right? That's the story. But whatever players you have, whoever they are and whatever they're doing, if they can start changing things, then that original story, I mean, as far as my GMing philosophy is now, the original uh, events that would have um, happened can be inexorably changed. But I mean, but it's a big if, right? Like, who are you to interfere with the plans of Sauron, who's, what, 100,000 years old? Whatever, whatever years we want to put on him. But anyway, I get the friction, right? I get the friction of there's this really cool story, and if the players only stepped on this spot at a particular moment, a cool narrative uh, event could unleash and so I get why that's appealing, um, but I don't. I don't prefer that. I prefer much more. Let the cause and effect chain spread out. And for me, with my system, I, I don't have a dice dependent system. It, I don't have wild randomness, and this is why, of course, uh, system matters, right? Because if you have a system where the dice are, are really can generate wild, uh, disparate events. I'm not going to enjoy that system because I want a system that reflects more of my intuitions about reality. Hmm. So I 
Daniel cannot beat Conan. Mm. There is no dice uh, that can can replicate the odds of me beating Conan. Mm. And but some people really like uh, craps with regards to their role playing games. And so this is another part of the gaming appetite. If you want a world that's that random, where dice are that fundamentally powerful, you're going to have a very different experience than a, a system which replicates more of the realities of life, which is to say that chance matters some, but not that much. What really matters is uh, skill and circumstance. And it's a little bit of randomness on the side. And yeah. This seems to connect with... I guess, you know, what, what, well, you know, we, we talk about uh, a, a narrativist gaming style, um, but even that's not one thing. You know, if, if we're, if we compare the, the, the different narratives of, you know, classic stories or, or, or even movies, um, you know, particular narratives have certain investments and payoffs. You know, watching a movie like Gladiator, you know, one of the most interesting things about that kind of, of movie is its earnestness that throughout the entire story, there's, n- there's nothing absurd ever happens in that story, right? Everything is set up and payoff, set up and payoff. It's a build of a narrative to a final satisfying conclusion. You know, even tragedy can be a satisfying conclusion. Compare that to you know, another uh, 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 kind of narrative, something that has absurd chance that takes place. And I'm I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, I don't quite remember the name of it. There was a, there's a Steven Soderbergh film. Near the end of the film, the heroes are trying to pull off a heist and one of their their, uh, antagonists, I think is coming up some stairs to stop what they're trying to do. And as he's walking up the stairs, he trips, falls on his own gun and blows his brains out. And this character absolutely would have killed all of the heroes that his skill level would have been enough. I mean, he was like a trained assassin or something. And of course, in that type of narrative, it works because that sudden absurd chance completely changing the direction of the story, it works in that moment. But if you're, if you're trying to play a gladiator-type game, the absurdity doesn't work, right? But if, you're, if you've got a gaming style, I don't know, I suppose you could play uh, Call of Cthulhu or you could play some other type of story that has these absurd random chances and have this work, have it work as a story, have it work, you know, to be a satisfying game to play for the characters. But if I'm in Tolkien's world... You know, I don't want a, a, a Legolas style, you know, character to completely, you know, I mean, to, to completely miss his shot and kill his friend. Right. That's or, not a satisfying narrative in that type of world. Yeah. Right? Or, or what Peter Jackson did to Legolas's character in the films. Oh, I, yeah. I, yeah. I just despise those movies as examples, John. I won't know. What you're about. <laughs> yeah.